I think if you take a look at the the predominant message from abortion supporters is not abortion kills an unborn child and that's okay, right? They don't admit that. They don't want to talk about that at all. Their argument is without abortion, women are going to suffer or without abortion, women won't be equal to men or won't be able to, to flourish or have equal rights. Uh, and so I think as pro-lifers, that's the number one argument that people out there believe to the extent they disagree with us. And so that's the number one argument we need to be able to respond to. Welcome back to The Narrative. I'm Mike Andrews, joined by David Mahan today. David, the prayers of the people have been heard. No Aaron Bear today. They get what they want. Just the Mike and David show. <laughs> we, we give our fans what they what they ask for, right? That's right. You know, when, when, uh, when the boss is away, the cats will play. And uh, we got two of the coolest cats with you today. Woo-hoo! Oh, fire. Spitting fire. Oh, my gosh. We didn't even plan that, ladies and gentlemen. That's how smooth we are when right Aaron's there. not in the We're house. taking the narrative to the next level today. <laughs> well, this past weekend marked the, the one-year anniversary of the Dobbs ruling that overturned Roe versus Wade. And we'll save it for the interview coming up because we're going to chat with Alexandra DeSanctis about that issue. Uh, before we get to our news segment, though, I did want to remind all of our listeners that if you have any questions you want to ask us, we are doing another Ask Us Anything episode coming up in, in just a couple of weeks. And you're welcome to call or text us. You can leave a voicemail at 614-769-7077. Again, that number 614-769-7077. Or you can shoot us an email at the narrative at ccv.org. We really want to hear from, from you. David, I know the episode we did last uh last volume when we just took listener questions. That was fun. It was a good opportunity just to interact with the audience a little bit, even if it wasn't one-on-one, but to, to hear what some of our listeners are thinking about and want more information on. And we'd love to do that again for them. This Absolutely. It's good to hear from everybody when we're out and about, you know, in the field, like especially this time of year, we're crisscrossing the state. Always good to hear uh, directly from our audience um, what, what they like, what, what concerns them, uh, what they like to hear more of. Um, but again, I mean, I, there's there's a handful of us here. It's hard to, to beat everybody face-to-face. So this is just an awesome opportunity to get everybody's opinion on it. We've talked a lot in the last couple of weeks about where we are in the state budgeting process, and a lot of our bills are tied up in that. And there was one thing that we sent an email out about over the weekend that we haven't talked much about here on the show, and I thought it was a good opportunity for us to to break it down a little bit, but a piece in the budget they're calling the Social Media Parental Notification Act, and this is something that Lieutenant Governor John Husted, Governor Mike DeWine, uh, announced as a proposal that essentially would require social media companies to get parental consent before granting minors under the age of 16 an account. And the intent behind this is to create a method that would determine whether a child is under 16, if they are, to make sure that the parents or guardians consent for them to use a social media platform and then also notify the parents that 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 consent has been received and that their child has been granted an account. And it's one of those things you hear a lot of arguments about, well, is this a free speech issue? Does it infringe on that? But there's so much going on with social media these these days, David. And and as a parent, I know uh, it's not something that I would want my child entering into without me knowing what they're getting themselves into so I can be more active and involved in that process. Yeah, I, I can't I can't imagine being a young parent like yourself, Mike. Uh, just Did you just young, call me young? young strapping lad Thank like you, yourself. Sir. We, my, my baby's 20 <laughs> years old and, and we were very tight about um, computer usage uh, at what age they got smartphones and things like that. But but to raise kids in this day and age, um, it, it 
I mean, it, it's rough. I, I, I agree with the bill. I, I think that there need to be when, when you see the, the harms that are that are being done. And I think a lot of the studies that came out during the covid years really shine some light on you know, some of the issues that we're having with kids, like just increased loneliness, uh, risk of depression and anxiety. Um, I mean, online predators. I mean, I, I did a lot of work in, in human trafficking and the number one way kids got caught up in trafficking was 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 uh, some kind of relationship with, um, you know, I don't know, romantic relationship with somebody online. There's a lot of predatory behavior and, and, you know, data collection, sleep deprivation, just on and on and on. I remember we had um, Lieutenant Colonel Grossman on Mm -hmm. talking about, you know, the violence of the generation. He said a big part of that violence is being caused um, by the sleep deprivation that's going on um, in large part because of the video games, which actually is a part of this bill. Um, it's not just social media, but on these online video gaming platforms, they would also have to get age verification. Yeah, that's that's really interesting. It hadn't caught that part of the video game aspect of it, but in some ways it ties into the conversation we had with uh, Senator Josh Hawley last week too. I know he's right. introduced something similar on the national level and in, there's there's no substitute for parents being involved is right. is the bottom line. But at the same time, you reference some of the studies that are out there that there is a significant link between social media usage and teen depression and those type of things. And and I know just trying to put some reasonable safeguards in our own home, uh, we have a now 17 year old who's turned out to be pretty well adjusted by not being on social media. And you fight through that initial disappointment right. of not being able to participate with peers and that type of thing. But I hope she's at the point where she can kind of look back and see that those were probably some good restrictions to have. And now as she steps into social media usage, she's at a little better spot in her maturation and development to be able to handle it. Now, that's questionable given <laughs> given her parental influence, at least who half of that is right. in me. But, you know, you know yeah. what I'm saying? I, I would say, you know, like like I said, my baby's 20. My oldest is 28. It The coolest thing, Mike, is... Um, you know, when, when everybody's over as a family, we're having dinner or whatever, and you can hear them talking amongst themselves in another room or maybe they'll be on the phone or um, my son just wrote a book. Um, and, and to be able to go through the book, listen to some of those conversations that they're having with their peers about how they grew up. You know, we homeschooled and now they talk about homeschooling in a positive light. Some of the boundaries that they have on them, they talk about in a positive light. Um, how how adults see them as so much different than young people their age um, they talk about it in a positive light. And so I just I say that to encourage you that uh, keep doing <laughs> what you're doing. Um, it pays off for sure. That's awesome. That's awesome. And it kind of ties into the next thing I wanted to touch on today in in that we see some young people or have seen recently these stories. It's graduation time. So you get the graduation commencement speeches. And there was another one uh, from, I think, South Carolina a couple weeks ago that that went somewhat viral with a young lady who stood up and articulated her faith very well as part of that. <laughs> powerful. And then we look at the Oklahoma softball team, which was a little earlier in June, but they have a post-game press conference and three players right in a row offer a pretty passionate and strong defense of their faith. And it's just encouraging to see that from this you know post-high school, post-college generation of kids who can young adults, I guess I should say that can now articulate their faith very well. And and they're not doing it with deep theological knowledge. It's just because of that uh, genuineness of their relationship with Jesus Christ. Yeah, it it was beautiful, especially the ones with the softball um, players. It was, it was beautiful to hear them talk about the influence of their coach. Um, 
obviously to to how they spoke of the Lord um, was amazing. But but as they as they spoke of the coach and the influence that they had on these girls to uh, stand strong in the midst of adversity, um, the the humility. I mean, this is an amazing team. I, I don't, I'm not a baseball fan or a softball fan, especially, but but to hear um, you know them speak so eloquently and and and, and you know with humility uh, about their love and their walk. Uh, for the Lord was just it was it was a beautiful thing and it, you know for Pride Month I thought it was a great way to kick off uh, Pride Month right because I, I don't see a lot of pride in you know taking a lot of pride in what we're seeing out in the street but the pride that they took in their in their love for the Lord was was a beautiful way to kick off uh, real Pride Month in my in my opinion yeah that's a good point and it doesn't always have to be overly complicated it can just be you know, expressing what you've experienced as a believer and I'm curious David you know you and I we're both preachers occasionally and you do a lot of public speaking and that kind of thing what was your experience like as you transitioned into more of a public role and, and being you know out in front delivering speeches to schools early on and churches and things like that how how did how did that develop for you um to give you confidence to speak boldly about your faith you know i think i i, I always look back on how i kind of cut my teeth in the ministry which was mm-hmm. youth ministry and then specifically youth detention center ministry and uh you know sharing my faith um in there was so freeing Right. Because you think, man, I've never done drugs. I've never done this. I've never done this. And you try to fit into this mold of what they want you to be or, or what you feel like you need to be to reach them. Um, but I realized something that whenever I would talk about, you know, what I was going through as a young father, whenever I was talking about my adversities day to day, stupid things my kids were doing when I was young, um, the difficulties of trying to meet the needs of a young family when I was young myself, growing up in kind of the same neighborhood that a lot of these people were growing up in, they could connect to, um, to that, those pieces. And it was like, I didn't have to be a drug addict. I didn't have to be an alcoholic. All I had to do was talk about my walk with the Lord and how he uh, made me strong, even in the midst of my weakness. Um, somehow they were able to connect to that humanity, obviously with the Holy Spirit. Um, but when I began to kind of show that human side of me, um, and, and, and was at the same time striving to be a good father, striving to be a good husband, um, when it seemed like everything in the world was against me, um, that, that kind of was, was something that they showed me, they taught me um, when it came to, to effective communication in that realm. Yeah, it's, it's an authenticity. And I think that's what we saw with some of the stories that we talked about with the softball team or the graduation speeches. When you're willing to be authentic with people, that resonates and that, that adds credence to the gospel message. Not that it needs anything added to it, but when, when I know as a preacher, as I got into that and started standing up, the more that I was willing to be a little bit vulnerable, don't have to go into every single detail of my life, but can share some struggles, can share some areas where you've stumbled or walked with more of a limp than a swagger. I think, I think the audience <laughs> can, right. your audience buys into that more and is more receptive to what you have to say. Yeah, I mean, everybody's expecting me to talk about how they were great athletes. And I think what they came away with was just great disciples. Yeah. Amen to that. Uh, one last thing I wanted to give you an opportunity to to update us on, David. I know you've had the chance to go around the state a little bit and, and talk about issue one coming up in in August on the August 8th election ballot. And you've been in churches and, and had the opportunity to pass out some resources and really be 
at ground level, the grassroots effort that we've got going on. And I just wanted to give you an opportunity here today to, to kind of tell us what your report is from those meetings and what kind of sense you're getting of, especially within the church, uh, the movement for yeah. issue one that we've seen. I mean, just that, that term grassroots, um, it, it is a beautiful thing, Mike, to be a part of a true grassroots movement. When, when, uh, you know, when folk, you bring up different bills like Safe Act, Save Women's Sports, and, it, you know, you've been talking about it over the years, and then you tell them the victory that we had, you know, just being passed out of the, out of the House and moving on to the Senate and just seeing everybody literally just stop you with applause and um, praising the Lord. Um, and then, and then with this, with this uh, abortion fight, just seeing them take ownership of it. Not just asking what can I do, but talking about the things that they've already begun to do. Um, you know, the passing out yard signs, door knocking, um, making phone calls. They actually know some of their county captains uh, and, and have communicated with them in, in their areas. Um, how can I be involved is, is a big piece of it, but I'm just really excited to hear about the things that they're doing. Um, their pastors starting to give announcements and uh, doing voter registration drives and, and things like that. It's just, it's an exciting time to be in Ohio and uh, to be a believer in Ohio, especially. And for me, I know being able to hear people say that they understand the importance of the August 8th election. Um, it, it's not going to be one of those that just kind of flies by the radar and, oh, we had no idea we were voting in August. I feel like there's some momentum behind that message now that you got to get out and vote because this is part of uh, defeating the abortion industry in November is getting out to vote in August yeah, as well. And, and you can get out and vote early. Right. You can get out there and vote August uh, 11th yeah, July, or July, July 11th. 11th yeah, July 11th is early voting. You can go um, to your county board of elections and, and take a bunch of folks with you and uh, maybe have a few people over to your church. A speaker have, you know, I, I can come. Mike can come. Some of the other guys can come. And you don't want me. You want David. <laughs> <laughs> and then we could we can do like a little a little party thing and then just everybody carpool over there and, and vote early. And I know that that's kind of new to a lot of us, but we're in a new age. And in a new time and I think sometimes we have to do learn to do new things but there, there's a lot of things that we can do um, to, to kind of st you know stir up momentum um, for our community I was telling folks at um, one of the events recently is I believe with my whole heart Mike that um, our outcome is going to be a lot better than Michigan's right where they said that the body of Christ basically didn't know what was going on I believe we're going to win this thing we're going to win big I think we're going to see a huge increase in voter turnout for a special election usually you only get about seven eight percent voter turnout we're going to blow that out of the water my biggest concern mike is that i don't want the body of christ to miss their opportunity to be a part of that win that that generational win um that that we have an opportunity to be a part of i don't want them to miss out on that yeah and if you're looking for something to do as we always say around CCV, praying is doing something. Absolutely. And we've produced a, a prayer devotional. If you haven't heard about it yet, you can go to ccv.org slash life devotional. We've got an order form up there. And it's just a, a simple roadmap through six weeks of prayer about the abortion ballot issue specifically and invite you to participate with us in that. It's been a tremendously well-received resource. I think we've given out over 60,000 of them already wow. in just about two months. So the the response to that has been phenomenal. And we're really praying that the Lord will yeah, my, bless My pastor was really touched by it, by the way. He um, he had a bunch of them. He was giving them out, laid them on the altar and said, hey, just everybody come on up and get one. Touch my life. I know it'll touch yours. That was, that was awesome to hear him say. That's awesome. That is good to hear. We're going to continue our, our conversation about um, the abortion issue at large with Alexandra DeSanctis coming up in just a minute. She's uh, authored a book 
book on the topic. She's been a, a very clear pro-life uh, voice, both as a author and a speaker. And we're really looking forward to the conversation with Alexandra coming up on the narrative. Hope you'll stick around for that. Hey, narrative listeners. You know, Christians in the marketplace today face more unique and challenging threats than ever before. Businesses are following woke capitalism. Chambers of commerce are beholden to social justice. And secular activists are chipping away Christians' First Amendment rights. As Ohio's only Christian Chamber of Commerce, the Christian Business Partnership stands in the gap to advocate for, to educate, and to celebrate Christian business owners. Joining the partnership also allows businesses to provide their employees with health care insurance, workers' compensation, and exclusive banking and educational discounts. To find out more and to join, go to cbpohio.org. That's cbpohio.org. And we're back on the narrative. Mike Andrews, David Mahan, and our special guest today is Alexandra DeSanctis. Alexandra is a visiting fellow at the Ethics and Public Policy Center, a staff writer at National Review, and a widely published journalist covering politics, abortion, the pro-life movement, elections, and religion. She regularly appears on National Review's The Editor's Podcast and speaks to students and pro-life groups around the country. Her work has appeared in The New York Times, The Wall Street Journal, The Washington Post, The Atlantic, and more. Alexandra is also the co-author of Caring Ourselves Apart, How Nation Harms Everything and Solves Nothing. Alexandra is a graduate of Notre Dame and a former William F. Buckley Jr. Fellow in political journalism at the National Review Institute. She lives in Northern Virginia with her husband. And Alexandra, I can't thank you enough for your time today. This obviously is a a crucial time for us here in Ohio with the abortion fight that we've got coming up uh, in August and again in November. And we're so thankful to have your expertise and your voice uh, join us today on the podcast. No, it's great to be with you. Thanks so much for having me. And I have to say, as I was doing some research for the podcast today, I noticed that your book launched officially one year ago today on June 28th. So a happy one year anniversary to becoming a a published author. Thank you so much. Yes. Great timing. Yeah, this it was a fantastic resource for the pro-life movement. And now that we're a year past the Dobbs decision, I wondered if we could start off today with you just giving us a little bit of the, the landscape nationwide of what we've seen in the year since Roe was overturned. Sure. So I, I think what we've seen um, is pretty much what we we had expected. You know, um, we we did expect when we were writing the book that the court would overturn Roe v. Wade, and, and thanks be to God, they did. Um, and so what we what we've witnessed is states that have been trying to protect unborn children throughout pregnancy um, for fifty years now finally are able to actually do so. Right? States have been trying to pass these laws, and and they've been struck down by courts again and again. And now finally, because of Dobbs. Um, they're able to put these laws in place. So that's a, a really big win. There's about 15 to 20 states with some some form of a really protective pro-life law in place. Uh, and then on the other side, unfortunately, we have a, about a dozen, 10 or so uh, very, very progressive states with uh, very liberal abortion laws. So abortion throughout pregnancy for any reason. Some of these states are even trying to make abortion more permissible now than it was before Dobbs. They're trying to attract women, you know, calling themselves abortion tourism states um, so that women can come from other states and get abortions. And then in the middle, you kind of have a handful of, of purple states where um, folks are still kind of sorting out where they're going to come down on this issue. State legislatures haven't really come up with a good compromise law yet. Um, and so I think that's kind of the battleground for this issue right now. And as you look ahead to to what the next steps are, because I think one of the things that we realized pretty quickly in the wake of Dobbs was that it was only step one. Like the, there certainly was so much momentum over the 50 years of trying to get Roe overturned, but it by no means was the finish line. It was the starting line. 
So as, as we now look at this next phase of the pro-life movement, what are going to be some of the next, um, if not critical, the next maybe most immediate steps that, that we should expect in the pro-life movement? Yeah, well, I think one thing that's been really tough since Dobbs is that this is obviously a multi-pronged um, strategy, right? And and before um, before Dobbs, the main goal was to get rid of Roe v. Wade, right? There were a lot of other pro-life initiatives, but you could really only do so much, particularly with regard to law and policy, while Roe was still in place. And so there's this kind of unified focus of we've got to get good justices, we've got to lobby, um, got to get the right cases in front of the Supreme Court to get rid of Roe. Now that that's been done, I think things are much more diffuse. And that's why you're seeing a lot of this struggle and lack of clarity and lack of focus among pro-lifers. Um, and, and to my mind, it's it's a fairly complex issue, right? We have to have legal strategies, policy strategies, but those have to go hand in hand with cultural strategies, right? Things like pro-life um, pregnancy resource centers or you know um, state support for families and mothers in need, all kinds of things we can do at the cultural level to try and, and build a more pro-life society. Um, and we need both, in my opinion, federal and state laws, right? We can't just focus myopically on states. We have to have federal pro-life policy. And in my view, we have to have a federal pro-life law at some point that we don't have the votes for it now. Uh, so we have to kind of think on all these tracks. It's not just, you know, only the state legislatures that matter. In regard to the um, the states where we had a ballot initiatives, you know, we're 0 for 6 uh, here um, with uh, Ohio being in the crosshairs for the 7th state. Um, what would you say are some of the biggest challenges uh, that we're seeing? You know, you think after after such a large win, the states would be ready to fight, uh, or maybe not. Maybe they they didn't realize that there would be a fight, right? Maybe they just thought that it would all be said and done with the overturning of Roe v. Wade. But but what what is the problem? How how are we over six at this point? Um, you know, a year after uh, the Dobbs case. Yeah, I'm really glad you asked that question because I think the ballot the ballot measures are a very, very weak point for pro-lifers right now. And I think the main reason for that is you're having right a ballot initiative is is by definition it's voted by everybody in the state is going to the polls and voting on it, right? So that's very different from from the laws being set by the state legislature, which is a little bit more of a refined debate and and filtering through what people want, of course. But um when people are, are the ones actively voting, I think what you're dealing with is a lot of confusion, right? The messaging is very complicated. And a lot of people don't really realize what they're voting on. To take one example, in Michigan, um, one of the the ballot amendments was to to essentially enshrine the right to abortion or the supposed right to abortion in the state constitution. Um, that ballot measure was passed, right? So the pro-abortion side won. Uh, but the the full text of the amendment that they wanted to put into the constitution was not even on the ballot, right? So people who didn't know what they were voting for were going in and reading this sort of abbreviated version. It wasn't super clear what it was. Uh, and the messaging from the pro-abortion side in Michigan was uh, Republicans want to ban all abortions no matter what. Women will be dying. Women will be in these emergency situations. Um, and so, of course, people are going to the polls thinking, well, I'm not an extremist, right? I don't want women dying. And, and if I don't want that, I had better vote for this amendment. And so you can see how the other side really effectively twisted around the, the messaging and the rhetoric there and their amendment one, even though it was far more extreme than what voters would want. And so the, I'm using that as an example, basically, to say the messaging is a lot more important and getting it right and having kind of the, the bully pulpit and using it effectively is really, really important with ballot measures. And I don't think pro-lifers have done that well enough yet. Where are we lacking in that, Alexander? And that's a totally selfish question. As David mentioned, we're we're in the middle of this. It's coming to our ballot, we think, in November. They have about a week left to finish collecting signatures to, to try and amend our state constitution with almost the same language that they used in Michigan. So as we attempt to resource the church and voters here in Ohio with why they need to oppose this measure, what are some of those key messaging topics that we really need to be hitting on from your perspective? 
Well, in my view, I think that the biggest problem to take Michigan again, not to beat up on on Michigan, but I think a big part of the problem is that um, the Republicans in, in Michigan were not clear with voters about what their alternative was. It was just, no, we don't want this ballot initiative, but we're not going to talk about what abortion policy we want to put in place. We're not going to talk about why we're pro-life. We're just going to kind of say not to vote for this thing and then hope the issue goes away. And I think you see that from a lot of Republicans, uh, not the pro-life movement so much, but Republicans are very afraid of this issue. They don't know how to talk about it convincingly. And so I think voters, you know, they might hear the right message from from a pro-life campaigner, for example, but then they look to Republicans who are are not being clear about what policy they want. And so I think the main way to oppose radical, uh, you know, extreme pro-abortion policies is to be very clear about us being the reasonable ones in the room, right? You have to vocally say, we support, you know, we'd love to have uh, pro-life laws from conception onward, but we understand right now that the state is not in favor of that, right? We were in favor of a heartbeat bill, for example. And so that's what we're going to put in place. That's what we're going to lobby for. And here's why that's more reasonable, more humane as compared to the extremism of the other side, right? You have to make a positive case for your vision um, and then contrast it very strongly with their extremism, I think. Yeah, and that's that's a great point because as I look at the data, and you can correct me here, but I think it's about 75% of the country that says they support some kind of restriction on abortion, at least you know after the first trimester, it shouldn't be allowed in summer or even earlier than that. But if you've got 75% of the country that supports this, how is 25% of the country essentially driving public policy uh, on this issue with these extreme ideas backing that 25%? Yeah, no, you're exactly right about that. Um, most polling suggests that the vast majority of Americans are far closer to the pro-life position than to the pro-abortion position. And so to me, I think that it really comes down to what I was saying in response to an earlier question about messaging, right? If people are not voting for the pro-life position, it's because they don't understand what the two positions are. And I think what they're hearing from the pro-abortion side is pro-lifers hate women. They want to ban all abortions no matter what. They don't care if women die in these dangerous circumstances. Uh, And they're not really getting, unfortunately, a very clear, compassionate, convincing answer from the other side. And so they're thinking, well, I don't really love abortion. I'd prefer to see it limited to some extent. But I certainly don't want to be living in this hellscape where women are dying, you know, because of pregnancy complications. So I'm going to have to go with the Democrats. Um, And so I I fear where it's kind of these two big mistakes are not being clear and convincing about our own position and not doing enough to expose the extremism of the other side. Alexandra, what, one of the things that we've experienced here early on, um, not so much now, but early on, we were talking about messaging and, and bringing all the groups together, um, looking at the national polls, looking at polls here in Ohio. First thing we realized is that maybe we haven't gone to come as far as we thought with, um, you know, with with Ohioans views of, of life. Um, the other thing we had an issue with was some folks had an issue with um, the pollsters were saying we need a message that talks about how abortion harms women more so than how abortion harms babies. Um, a lot of folks had issues. They, they, they took strong issue with that. I heard you uh, bring it up a little bit. Um, you, you kind of wrote a rationalization of it in an interview. Could you kind of speak to that a little bit? Why why that shift in messaging is important? Yeah, I, I think it's really, really important. Uh, and and I wouldn't say that we should talk about abortion harming women to the exclusion of, of talking about the unborn child. But I think if you take a look at the the predominant message from abortion supporters is not abortion kills an unborn child and that's OK. Right. They don't admit that. They don't want to talk about that at all. Their argument is without abortion, women are going to suffer or without abortion, women won't be equal to men or won't be able to, to flourish or have equal rights. Uh, and so I think as pro-lifers, 
That's the number one argument that people out there believe to the extent they disagree with us. And so that's the number one argument we need to be able to respond to. Part of the response, of course, is abortion kills an innocent human being. And so it's not good for women to participate in that. Uh, but but we have to be prepared and willing, I think, to explain to you know sincerely motivated people who really don't understand why abortion is also devastating for women, right? Women are the second victim of abortion. And I think now is the moment to learn how to talk about that. And kind of kind of in, in that same vein, um, you know, Gen Zers um, kind of have a unique way of, of looking at the topic as well. Um, you know, they they more than any other generation maybe know that this is a baby, right? Like all of their peers are are sharing on social media, um, you know, three 4D ultrasound images. No question that we're talking about a child, a human being. But but there is some nuance there um, with with this generation as they uh, about how they perceive abortion. Um, can you speak to that a little bit as well? Yeah, definitely. So so one statistic I've heard is that um, Gen Z, kind of like you were saying, is is more likely than other generations to acknowledge that that abortion is killing a human being or that the unborn child is a human being. But they're also more likely to say that they would drive their friend to get an abortion if they wanted one, wow. uh, which I think is really, really shocking. And and the takeaway for me from that is that we haven't done a good enough job explaining or they don't yet believe that taking your friend to get an abortion is not helping her. Right. And so to go back to your, your earlier question, it's really important to have the, the ability to say abortion is harmful to women, even if a woman is in a, a difficult situation or you know facing an unexpected pregnancy, not being supported by the father of their child. Um, abortion is not actually a solution, right? I think many, many Americans are convinced that we need legal abortion because they think it's a solution to problems. It's not an ideal, it's not good, but it's necessary. Um, and so being able to explain, especially to young people, why this is not necessary and, and in fact harmful to women is really important. I'm struck too, Alexandra, by the fact that that we're in this moment where the extreme position is acknowledging that a baby is a baby and has rights, that 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 is the extreme end and we don't want to be at the extreme end. So saying abortion at any point up to birth without restrictions is less extreme than that. And, and that's more than messaging. There's some worldview underpinnings there. And I know I've heard you mention those a few times and would love if you could just unpack that a little bit of how, how we get to a point where where it seems like something that's just basic biology is actually... Uh, seen as the radical position from the culture. Yeah, well, I, I really do think a lot of it comes back to, unfortunately, as pro-lifers, we're sort of starting out with a disadvantage because we've been living through 50 years of row and and law really does shape culture, right? People um, take their cues from what from what our government says. And so for 50 years, it's been the law of the land that abortion is, um, you know, a woman's right embedded in the Constitution. And so people have taken their their kind of mental and emotional cues from that. We just sort of have absorbed the notion that this is a woman's right and that women will only be free and equal to the extent that they can have an abortion. Um, and so the, the kind of critical thinking component of what happens in an abortion, you know, is that OK? People don't even think about that. They don't even get to that question. It's just, you know, I might not like it, but other people need to have that right. That's really the the dominant thinking. Um, and I, I think there hasn't even been a debate until now. Right. I. I think it might be tempting to be discouraged. That's been kind of a slow slog of a year, um, but we're really just just starting out. Think about how long it's going to take to undo that kind of thinking, right? I think we're really in a, a generational um, series. Like, and it, it'll take many generations to to fight back against that um, sort of embedded idea. And how would you suggest? 
we're coming up on Fourth of July. There's going to be a lot of get-togethers, friends and family around the barbecue and things like that. Not that these hot button issues always come up, but if they do, uh, what are some ways that that people could make a, a robust and clear and concise argument for life, uh, just in those interpersonal interactions they may be having over the next week or so? Yeah, I love that question. I I'm never one to say you know go looking for a fight, but I also always end up talking about abortion at at cocktail parties. So it definitely happens. Um, but I would say I, I think the number one thing I've I've begun to think more about, and particularly through writing the book, I've come to realize that um, a lot of people on the other side of this issue are really not thinking about how it's an unborn child and thinking it's great and fine that abortion is legal. I think people on the other side of this issue a lot of time a lot of the time are sincere or ignorant or just haven't spent enough time thinking about it. Um, and so by that, I mean, they're really, they're open to a conversation. They're open to hearing what we have to say. They might not change their mind. They might not ever say that they changed their mind. Um, but I think uh, sharing with them a message that might change their mind requires asking them why they think what they think, right? Get to the root of why they're pro-abortion. Um, is it because they think the unborn child isn't a child at all? Is it because they you know, know a woman who suffered because she couldn't get an abortion or whatever it is, there's usually some some thinking there. Um, and I find that that asking for it, trying to understand that, and then responding specifically to their fears or concerns, that's really how you you change hearts and minds. We've uh, we've referenced a couple of times uh, already on the podcast, your book, um, Tearing Ourselves Apart. So if you could, I know it's been about a year, uh, actually, it's exactly a year um, yeah. that you uh, put that book out. It, it co-authored with Ryan Anderson, uh, one of our favorites around here. Could you just tell us about the book and how we can how we can get it, what it's about? Sure. So so the book is uh, Tearing Us Apart, How Abortion Harms Everything and Solves Nothing. And Ryan and I wrote the book um, while the court was deliberating in Dobbs. So we were writing our manuscript as they heard oral arguments. And the idea of the book was, you know, we were both anticipating a um, positive decision in Dobbs, you know, essentially a decision we ended up getting. And our thinking was, um, you know, we're going to be living in a, a very different country, right? Post-Roe America is going to look very different and pro-lifers have a really big challenge ahead of them. Um, and so the, the, the basic thesis of the book is um, pro-lifers have been very good at explaining for 50 years how abortion harms, kills the unborn child. Uh, but let's learn how to broaden that argument out and talk about how abortion has harmed women and families, how it's harmed our culture, our law, our politics, our medical profession. Um, and so each chapter kind of goes through and takes a look at all these various aspects of, of our society and, and talks about how legal abortion has really destroyed all these things, even though it was pitched as a solution, kind of like I've said, it really hasn't been. It's really harmed us in a lot of, of very deep ways. And the idea being, you know, pro-lifers in this new moment can can read this book and have the best argument statistics kind of talking points at their, their fingertips as they're learning to think through and, and speak about this issue. And correct me if I'm wrong, wasn't there a, a new edition that just came out recently with a revised forward that kind of takes into into account the past year and, and everything that's happened since Roe was overturned? That's right. Thank you. I'm glad you asked because our publicist would like me to mention that. We did just have a paperback. <laughs> it just came out um, June 20th and we have a, a new forward and a new afterward. Um, so you can find that yeah, wherever books are sold, Amazon, Barnes & Noble, take your pick. Outstanding. That's great. Well, you know, as we start to to wrap up here today, I, I also just want to ask, um, in general, since Roe was overturned, we haven't seen any of the rhetoric cool down. It definitely doesn't seem like this this solved anything because you know when you go after a sacred cow, people get very very upset. And so even though this is oh, the overturning of Roe just gave the right to decide on abortion back to the states, uh, it feels like 
a lot of people out there believe that they've lost something um, very sacrosanct to them. So as we engage in these conversations, are there are there arguments that you're hearing with a little more heat behind them around the abortion issue um, than even when Roe was still in effect or, or things that have really ratcheted up the kind of favorite arguments of the other side since Roe was overturned? Yeah, I, I think that the number one thing I would mention in that context is I'm I've been a little bit surprised at the extent to which the argument that pro-life laws will result in women dying has featured in the, the pro-abortion argument. And I think it's it's very telling that that's what they go to, right? They don't want to explain why they uh, defend their preferred abortion policy. They want to focus on on why pro-lifers want women to die, um, because I think they know their their own argument is weak and unpopular. Um, but I, I think it's really been frustrating to watch how much they focused on this lie, right? I, I went through, I wrote an article going through all the pro-life laws in place, all the ones being debated. Um, they all have exceptions so that if women are facing pregnancy complications or some kind of healthcare emergency, it's very clear that doctors are able to treat the woman, right? The, the woman is a person too. Her health matters. Her life matters. Um, and doctors are always able to take care of her without directly killing her unborn child as they would in an abortion. Uh, but this has been made very unclear and confused intentionally by supporters of abortion. Uh, I think that's been a really powerful argument, unfortunately, for a lot of people who just kind of hear this, you know, argument rumbling around. OK, women might die if pro-life laws are in place. I definitely don't want that to happen. Right. I'm not um, you know, I don't want abortion throughout pregnancy, but I certainly don't want women to be dying um, because of healthcare complications. So I better vote against pro-lifers. I think that's been a really, really powerful and successful argument for them, unfortunately. Alexandra, I thought I was done, but I do have one more question. Um, my wife is the director of a crisis pregnancy center here um, in inner city Columbus. And with the proliferation of chemical abortions, mail order abortions, um, it would seem to me that making that argument that abortions harm women would be easier now. Um, or or if not now, in the near future, uh, when we start to see some some real numbers and some real testimonies behind what is happening uh, with those those forms of abortions. Any, any thoughts about that? Yeah, no, I think you're completely right about that. So chemical abortions are now more than half of abortions in the U.S. And what's most striking about them is that women now, um, well, women have always taken them at home by themselves, right? And particularly if they're never seeing a doctor in person, because now abortion supporters, you know, have pushed to have telemedicine chemical abortions. Women can just have chemical abortion drugs prescribed online. They never see a doctor. And so without knowing for a fact how far along they are in pregnancy, um, without knowing whether they might have an ectopic pregnancy, women are just ingesting these these drugs at home. Um, and something we talk about in the book is that that women often have um, pretty significant, certainly physical complications from this that, you know, they end up in the emergency room. Um, but secondly, women have very significant psychological side effects because of this. They're at home, you know, essentially inducing miscarriage at home alone. We have one particularly horrific story in the book about a woman who who uh, took chemical abortion drugs at home and ended up seeing her her dead baby in the toilet. Right. I mean, it's just nauseating stuff. And, and to think that these women then, you know, go on out there with the, these regrets because of that or, or, you know, deep psychological suffering because of having experienced that. So I think you're exactly right that there's a, a huge amount of harm um, inherent in the, the rise of chemical abortion. Well, hopefully it's it's no surprise to our listeners, Alexandra, that that this is an incredibly nuanced issue. Like there's so many layers, so many things to consider uh, with the abortion issue. And as we consider public policy, I, I just want to ask this question too. Um, you know, we're, we're fortunate in Ohio, we do have a heartbeat law. 
on the books. Uh, it's been held up by a court injunction right now. Um, and we're, we're hopeful in our fight coming up against the abortion ballot initiative that we have in November. There are other states that aren't as fortunate as us. Uh, you talked about purple states or blue states earlier on in the interview. So what kind of public policy uh, wins, or I guess, what, is, what does a public policy win look like in some of these different circumstances where there may be uh, some more extreme abortion ideologies that are running the state governments or, or those type of things? And, and how can we you know, balance? Not everybody's going to get a heartbeat law. We're not going to get a, a total abortion ban. Um, you know, how, how do we have a sliding scale for, for pro-life wins in those situations? Yeah, well, I think unfortunately in, in those very pro-abortion states, um, a pro-life win basically just looks like stopping the worst possible thing from happening if you can, playing defense as much as possible. Uh, I think it looks like, you know, trying to, to support pregnancy resource centers, crisis pregnancy centers as much as you can, um, even though a lot of these states are actively trying to shut down pregnancy resource centers. Uh, but I think the question you pose ultimately, um, the answer is we have to have federal pro-life laws, right? We can't have a nation divided against itself cannot stand. I don't think we can have a country very successfully for very long where about half of our states recognize that unborn human beings are being unjustly killed and the other half continue killing them, right? I don't think that that's tenable long term. And so I think we, you know, it's certainly important to, to focus on good state laws as much as we can, but ultimately we're going to have to have some kind of national agreement on this. That's that's a great point. And, and Alexandra, I'm truly thankful for for your voice uh, in the pro-life movement. Uh, the The number of articles and books I've read from you have been very beneficial in my own thinking, and and hopefully this has been beneficial to our listeners as well. Where can people find you if they want to, you know, stay plugged into the work that you're continuing to do on this front? Yeah, so uh, most of my articles are published at the Ethics and Public Policy Center online, or they're you know published all over, but you can find them collected there. Um, I'm also on on Twitter intermittently if you you want to look me up on there. Um, less than I used to be, but I, I try to stay a little bit plugged in. Well, again, thank you so much for the time today. We really appreciate the insight and uh, keep up the great work in the pro-life movement. Thank you so much. And same to you all in Ohio. Thanks a lot. Thank you for tuning in to this episode of The Narrative, presented by CCV and produced by Wessler Media. If you found today's episode insightful, leave us a review or rating and subscribe anywhere you get your podcasts. We're your hosts, Mike Andrews, Aaron Bear, and David Mahan, and we'll see you next time on The Narrative.